It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. An insect infestation, which was first reported in 2020, will continue to cause damage to a variety of trees throughout the Tongass this summer. Last summer's unusually warm weather fueled an explosion in the western black-headed budworm, leaving masses of browning trees in many areas of southeast. The worm, which is the larval stage of the budworm moth, is known to feed on the new growth of trees, leaving them with a brownish-red appearance. While they've been known to target hemlock trees, Dr. Elizabeth Graham, an entomologist for the USDA Forest Service Alaska region, says budworms seem to be moving on to spruce this year. So last year we had the western black-headed budworm primarily infesting the hemlock, mostly western hemlock, throughout this, or a lot of southeast Alaska. And so this year it seems like they're giving the hemlocks a break. And so this is uh, possibly the result of, you know, depleting the resource of there was so much defoliation on hemlock uh, last year. And then females may have chosen to lay their eggs on spruce instead since there's Uh, maybe more of a foliage resource available than with the hemlock. According to the Forest Service, this is the first large-scale outbreak Southeast has seen since the mid-90s. While the damage may seem severe as worms continue to feed over the coming weeks, Dr. Graham says these infestations are a natural part of the changing forest. They're basically a cool driver of change in that they're, they're creating new gaps in the canopy, Um, adding some more light to the forest floor, adding some more fertilizers to the forest floor. And so there there are many ways to be beneficial. While most trees are expected to survive the outbreak, the Forest Service is encouraging visitors to document and share their observations of insects and tree damage through the iNaturalist app. Photos, videos, or information related to the budworm or its subsequent damage that is uploaded to the app will automatically be included in the Alaska Forest Health Observation Project, a citizen science project in iNaturalist. Commercial salmon fishing has begun in southeast Alaska for saners, trollers, and gillnetters. Most of the salmon runs in the region are forecast to be below average to average this year. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports. Five different salmon species are making their way to spawn in rivers and streams throughout the region. Some are part of indigenous runs and others are hatchery grown and released. Overall, the southeast runs aren't expected to be strong this year. We weren't expecting too great a runs overall as far as salmon goes. Troy Tines is the regional fin fish coordinator for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. So all in all, uh, going into the season, we were expecting a poorer season than what we experienced last season. By volume, pink salmon make up the largest commercial harvest in the region by far. The preseason forecast is for 16 million fish, which is considered weak. Pinks are on a two-year cycle, with even years producing smaller returns. Most chum salmon in southeast are hatchery produced. Tina says those operators are expecting low runs this year, with a total of around 8 million chum salmon. Southeast Chinook or King Salmon has had poor returns region-wide for several years. And that's not changing, says Tines. For the systems that we do forecast for, for the most part, we're projecting runs that would come in below the escapement goals. Escapement goals are the number of salmon that managers want to see reach spawning grounds in order to sustain future runs. But like weather forecasts, salmon forecasts can change. 
Last year, for example, managers predicted an average pink salmon harvest of 28 million, but it ended up being over 48 million fish. This year, they forecasted poor sockeye salmon returns for the Stikeen River near Wrangell and the Taku River near Juneau. But the runs are coming in stronger than that. So far, indications are that the sockeye abundance appears to be better than what we were expecting. So that's, that's a big plus. Managers are expecting average sockeye runs for the Chilkat and Chilkoot rivers near Haines. Coho salmon are the hardest species to forecast, so managers don't do many estimations. Tina says the fish spend a varying amount of time in freshwater before heading into the ocean. Coho are just generally harder to uh, forecast because of their, their variance in, in uh, their life history. They can spend a number of years in freshwater, but they only spend one year out in the ocean. Pinks are the only other type of salmon that spend just one year in the ocean. So managers can get some indication of how the coho run might go by watching the pinks. Oftentimes, for pink salmon and coho salmon, there can be a correlation in, in their abundances because they experience the same ocean conditions. So if the ocean is good for pink salmon, um, it could be good for coho salmon as well. It's still early in the salmon season, and fisheries are just getting underway in southeast. But the commercial salmon industry is always an important economic driver in the region. Last year, the commercial catch was valued at over $130 million at the docks. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. A Ketchikan man recently reunited with three generations of a refugee family he helped resettle in the U.S. four decades ago. KRBD's Reagan Miller was at the reunion. It was an emotional reunion for Mike Harpold and Novo at Ketchikan's Kate Fox Lodge on a recent Sunday. The men first met 44 years ago. At the time, Harpold was working as an officer with U.S. Immigration Services. He had been touring refugee camps from Cambodia to Malaysia as he prepared to present a report on the camps to Congress. Then he got word that an American cargo ship had plucked a family from a sinking fishing boat hundreds of miles from shore. He was dispatched to the vessel to help find the refugees a home. 44 years ago, your parents pulled from my camera on the deck of the J. Paul Giddy. The super tanker that rescued you, them, on the open sea, 450 miles off the coast of the Philippines. Starving under communist rule, they had fled their homeland. But no one in the world wanted them. The supertanker tried to see the refugees to Singapore, but the country turned them away. In fact, with the refugees on board, the tanker couldn't dock anywhere. So, Harpold's wife Elaine says her husband stepped up. He said that the United States would take these people, so they allowed them to come ashore and go to the refugee camps and eventually get, arrive in the United States. With no authority to do so, Harpold visited the ship and gave every refugee on board humanitarian parole status. That's usually reserved for urgent needs like organ donation or for individuals who usually wouldn't be let into the U.S. His choice affected generations of a family he didn't see again for decades. That was until the reunion at Kate Fox Lodge. Vo's only daughter, Holly, said the family's trip to Ketchikan was coincidental. Vo's children, Holly, Alex, Carson, Paul Getty, and Sean Vo, had booked a cruise to Alaska on the celebrity solstice to celebrate their father's birthday. Before they left, Vo says a family member stumbled upon a book Harpold wrote about the Vos and other Vietnamese refugees called The People We Wanted to Forget. 
they recognized the photo of themselves on board of the J. Paul Getty. Vo immediately knew he had to visit Harpool during a port call in Ketchikan. He had to thank him. <laughs> and a very coincident and a very miracle. And then hopefully this is a very um, lucky for our family to see who helped us 44 years ago to settlement, resettlement in USA. A lunch was arranged. Vo and his wife May, their five children, their spouses, and a combined five grandchildren made the trip. Harpold was accompanied by his wife Elaine and daughter Liz. Vo shook Harpold's hand heartily, becoming emotional beside his children and wife when recalling Harpold's actions that day in 1978. Thank you, there's not enough word to say. Around the table, the Vos and Harpolds shared memories and caught up after 44 years apart. Vo's oldest son Alex sat next to his wife and down the table from his daughter. You know, I always told my daughter, I said, you know what, if this hadn't happened, we probably would be either back in our country or somewhere in, in some village somewhere, who knows, right? But the opportunity that this presented itself, uh, I, I can't even, you know, uh, put a, a, a price on it. So the price this gift he gave us is, is something that we always cherish. So thank you for that. He explained that when the family got to the country, they first settled in Chicago. You know, as any immigrant family, the struggle was real. Um, I think I always, and we always share with our kids what we did uh, at their age. And I think, uh, I, I think they don't have the concept of how much struggle it was in the beginning. You know, dad and mom, you know, they didn't know any English. We didn't either, but they figured it out and they gave us a... Uh, an opportunity that, you know, I think we really cherish. He says because of that, he and his siblings were able to go to school and chase the American dream. Carson Vo is in business with his older brother. He has three boys of his own now. He has his own memories of the J. Paul Getty. I, I locked myself in the bathroom there because of the knob and how to use it. Because it was, we didn't have it in Vietnam, right? I mean, he reflected that so many others seeking a safe place for their family never made it. Here, I think, is a testament of this Sean Vo is the youngest of Vo's children. I'm the baby, so um, compared to my older siblings who kind of went on that that voyage from Vietnam, I, I had it very easy. Um, I was never hungry growing up, as you can see. And um, you know, I'm just blessed to be in this family and blessed to just kind of hear about all the experiences that everyone has gone through. He remarked on how strange it was to find himself, 44 years later, in the same room as the man who got his family to the United States. It's crazy how the stars align this whole trip, so it, it definitely feels like, you know, fate. So. These days, the Vo family lives in California. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.